Hello everybody, Dr. F. Scott Field here, and I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor. The NPTE Final Frontier is the review course that I wish was around when I took the board exam. For those of you who know my story, it took me a handful of times to pass that exam, and quite frankly, I really wish I had an an exam review course around, uh, just like the NPTE Final Frontier. Uh, Check out their website, npteff.com, and use the code HET at checkout for 10% off to all of our listeners and fans. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, and I have with me today a very special guest, Dr. Susie Gronsky, who is a specialist in a very sensitive type area, pun partially intended, but men's pelvic health. Uh, We're going to talk today about all things men's pelvic health related, but Dr. G, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about your educational journey and how it led you to where you're at today. Yeah, thank you so much, Scott, for having me on the show. Such an honor. So my educational journey started, well, I graduated from physical therapy school. I went to Midwestern University in Downers Grove, Illinois. After I graduated, which was over a decade ago, I hate dating myself <laughs> as I cringe over here. I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I was, what, 2006 when I graduated PT school, so it's been a while. <laughs> yes, and it, it just goes by so quickly, honestly. So let's see if I can recap this in the Cliff Notes version. So I graduated from PT school. During my educational curriculum, we did not have much about pelvic health. In fact, we only had an hour sort of like an in-service, uh, a guest lecturer who came in and spoke about women's health and incontinence. And, and really, that was it. So as far as my education it, it, for pelvic health, uh, it certainly didn't come from my curricula. Although I know these days, there's more and more schools that indoctrinate pelvic health as part of the curriculum and also have clinical rotations. Uh, for pelvic health. And things have since shifted from being predominantly women's health to, you know, pelvic health to encompass everyone who has a pelvis. We all have pelvises. <laughs> so, um, so I digress. So after PT school, I really was fond of the uh, neural realm. So neurological conditions. So I decided to start in the acute inpatient rehab unit at Alexian Brothers in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. And that's where I started. So I really was doing inpatient rehab. I stayed there for a couple of years. Then I went to do outpatient geriatric and vestibular rehab for a little bit, then went to ortho. <laughs> I've kind of dabbled, you know, I've, I wrung out the uh, challenges out of each, I would say, niche or, uh, yeah, out of each niche. And then I said, you know what? Okay, I've, I've gotten what I wanted from this and I'm moving on. And so I kind of bounced around. And my really good friend at the time was like, there's a, there's a woman therapist uh, near you that uh, is looking for someone to, to hire on as part of a, a mentorship for, for women's health. And she has a really great clinic. You know, you might want to go and shadow her. She lets you shadow her. So I said, okay, women's health. Like I kind of did some, I had to do some research. I'm like pelvic therapy, you know, pelvic therapy, women's health. What, what role does physical therapy play in that? And of course the, the thought dawned on me too, was like, can I even like, 
can I do this? You know, I, I will be honest. My first thought was like, can I put my finger up people's private areas and orifices? You know, I was like, wow. So I, I did shadow this, this person and I, I fell in love from the very beginning. I just like her, her clinic was set up where it was a very spa like environment, to be honest, it was a private practice. You spent an hour with your patients. It was not rushed, very, very thought out and, and intimate on many different levels, of course, but I was very intrigued by pelvic health. And so after doing some shadowing and after then pursuing my continuing education with the Herman and Wallace Institute, and then with the American Physical Therapy Association, I decided to wholeheartedly devote my career to, to pelvic health. And so fast forward several years later in Illinois, before I moved to North Carolina, I had started my private practice in pelvic health. But of course, at that time, it still was very women's health focused for me because yeah, a lot of the curriculum, even for continuing education did not include male pelvic health. Like, I think there was maybe one course not even when I started to dive into this work several years ago, to, to be honest. So, you know, it was only after I started to work with men that I, that I was, you know, aware of classes in continuing education, but very, very rare to find classes that were specifically for male pelvic health or male sexual dysfunction or something like that. So, uh, so when I started my practice, I opened the doors, you know, for pelvic health. And I was very generic uh, on my website as far as the conditions that I, I can treat. And it was during that time several years ago where men were reaching out to me directly saying, I have these issues of, I have difficulty, uh, you know, with urination, urinary frequency. I have pain in the pelvic region, you know, that genital and elsewhere. I have difficulty having bowel movements. I have, I have difficulty sitting, you know, sexual dysfunction, et cetera. Do you think you could help me? And I said, well, yes, why not? We have all, we all have the same parts, just organized differently. So I took the challenge and I invited, you know, all pelvises because we all have pelvises in, and it was through the graciousness and the courage and the bravery of, of men, you know, male patients or penis owners to, to pursue getting help from pelvic physical therapy. And that's where it all, that's, you know, that's where my passion and then my, my focus on male pelvic health specifically began. So I did a lot of research. And since then I have created a course to teach other health professionals about male uh, sexual pain and pelvic health. I have written a book, uh, two editions of the, of my book, pelvic pain, the ultimate cock block. And, and here we are. So <laughs> That's a long, long answer to your Yeah, no, I question. love it. I love the journey. I love the story. I mean, that's to me that that journey really becomes so important because it shows a lot of other people that, you know, hey, we're we're just people. We're all learning along the way. Uh, and and it can be done. If it's something that interests you, you know, it, it can be done. Um, and I think my, my next question then is is kind of some of the hurdles that you, you kind of may have faced. And, and the one big one in my mind is really the male-female thing, right? You said it took that courage from the males reaching out to a pelvic floor physical therapist, right? Or a pelvic specialist, especially one that's female, right? Does that become an issue at all? Or how do you, how do you work on breaking down that barrier? I, I imagine it's kind of similar to the gynecologist you know, being a male and, and females going to see a male gynecologist, you know, what is that dynamic like? Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, so I'll speak first from the perhaps the experiences of, of men reaching out to a pelvic health provider. I will say because our profession and you know, as far as I, I recall, when I was going to school, it was, it was a female dominated profession. I don't know if that has changed currently, but we there's more it's more female dominant. So pelvic health, which kind of originally started as women's health, was very female dominated. And the, the barriers with um, other genders uh, and, I, and who, who identify as, as male is that there was no space for, for that. Like where, where was the voice or space or advocacy for, you know, concerns that men might be having. Right. And so that was the biggest barrier of, for men is like, who do I even go see? And it really was several years later that people like that men would reach out saying like, I wish I would have found knew about you sooner. I've gone through all of this and had no idea that this was even an option for me to pursue. That was a conservative option and an option that is very beneficial and successful. And it's like, well, and that's when I said, you know, up in arms, like, this is not right. <laughs> like we need to, you know, I, I took it upon myself as a response, my responsibility to advocate and be a voice and hold space, right, for men to say, here's the information, here's the conditions we can work on, you know, and that's from all touch points of, of contact, from the website, through my social media presence, through the book of really saying, you know, there are people, uh, pelvic therapists who work with, with men and, and here we are. Uh, and even to this day, it's still very infrequent as far as finding a therapist who is, is willing and comfortable. I mean, I'm talking from a female identified perspective who is, who is comfortable and competent and confident in, in serving the male population as far as their pelvic health and sexual health needs. So hence, you know, sexual pain, navigating care for men was birthed because I did see that there was a, I would say a gender gap as far as like willingness and availability to work with this population. So from, from that perspective of a male seeking care, huge barriers as far as who do I go see, who is competent, confident, where I can feel that, that I can fully be, so that I can fully trust this person in this therapeutic relationship, and that I can talk about very intimate concerns, which often they're not talking to anyone uh, about these concerns. And you might be as a therapist, the first one to actually be, be for them to share the story with you. So what a privilege and a gift, you know, if we can offer that safe space for uh, men to lean into these very vulnerable spaces and, and be able to hold uh, with compassion uh, and, and also integrity um, to, to help them through a very difficult time. So that's, that's that piece. And I think if I hear your question correctly, also, it's from my, from a practitioner point of view, what are some of the challenges of perhaps going into, you know, working with male pelvic health? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So from, from my perspective was, and I've already mentioned it before, is that there was a significant gap in like the accessibility to education and learning around male pelvic health. So when I first started uh, several years ago and dove into this work, I, I did not have much guidance as far as continuing education because it was so female dominant. So a lot of my learning really did come from uh, working with men and just getting more comfortable with working with men and, and doing the research directly with them and saying, you know, what is out there? What is missing? 
acting. And so I really learned on the job, so to speak. And then after that, I did take just, I would say one course. It was with Holly Tanner through the Herman and Wallace Institute. She has a great pelvic floor course for, for men. But even in those situations, we did not have male models to work on. And, and they're how, you know, you're doing very intimate exams, but we're doing it on each other who have, we're vulval vaginal owners, you know, and all those, these classes are gender expansive, meaning, you know, anyone can take them. We, we only had like one or two males at the time in the course. And so you, as you can imagine, we were all like, can we, can we practice on you? Can we do these techniques on you? And, and some feedback from the guys are like, you know, it's kind of exhausting to be like the, you know, token uh, participant here because we're learning too. And so I like, I, again, being the person that I'm like picking up on, wait, wait, we need to, we need to have a curriculum where therapists can actually practice hands-on skills with penis owners. And hence my course works with professional urogenital assistants where, where students have one-on-one -on -one interactions with pro professionals who teach uh, who teach other health professionals like medical providers, urologists to do internal and external exams. So they're coaching us through the process of, you know, how to do an exam and how to feel comfortable with working with all parts. And so, yes, if that answers your question, that's. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That's phenomenal. You touched on a lot of high points there that I want to kind of do a little bit deeper dive into here. Sure. But the first one I want to talk to you a little bit about is your alternative methods of education. You've got, uh, like you said, a book, you've got uh, your social media, you've got a course now that, you know, does a deeper dive on, on these uh, topics and how to handle them with other medical professionals, which is phenomenal. Um, tell us a little bit about some of those alternative methods of education and, you know, how, how you, you use them, you know, from different angles and when, do, when you maybe lean into one versus the other, which ones you enjoy, you know, which ones have been successful, because it, it really does seem like, uh, you know, it takes a lot of different angles to approach a topic like this and make it more acceptable or, or easier to talk about and, and really put the patients at ease and, and give them a better knowledge. Yes, that's a great question of how do I get the message out there? <laughs> what avenues and outlets do I use to for health promotion and, and education? So it was it's not easy. First, you know, when I got into uh, men's health, I had to do a lot of research of where do men gather their, re their resources or look for information. And in order for me to do that, I really had to get into the heads of men, not, you know, up here, not down here. So, so I have to say, no pun intended. I li I literally have to put my what I'm saying is I had to put my myself in their shoes and and to from a, from the area of what is it like to be a, a penis owner in our social in our society and what is missing and where are they living and where are they looking for the for resources and education. So through that journey of uh, the trial and tribulations of figuring that out, I realized like. Men will not often reach out to community as far as like, you know, even talking to their spouse or a medical provider right off the gate, like they're, they're, they're Googling. So they're like on, an, on the internet, Googling their symptoms and, and going onto forums. And they really, a lot of them live on YouTube. 
So, you know, watching videos and so forth. So it wasn't that like Facebook was where a lot of, of, of men are like necessarily looking up, you know, pelvic pain or sexual pain and penis issues, or even for that matter on Instagram. Although I think that is also a platform that's growing. And I know other therapists are using like TikTok as a way to educate the community uh, about uh, various pelvic health concerns for, for all bodies. But yeah, YouTube has been the most, I, I would say outreach, a platform for outreach for the people that are, are looking to educate. And then certainly my website and, may, and, and doing a lot of like language, use of linguistics, you know, how can I relate? Like I needed to really understand where they're coming from, what their frustrations are, have been with the medical community. In fact, there's, there's qualitative research that tells us that men who have pelvic pain one of the most, uh, or part of the, the, I guess I should say the top 10 impacts. Well, number six was mistrust of the medical community. Like number six was mistrust of the medical community. So knowing that I know I have to be like, I'm not here to take advantage of you. I'm not here to string you along or sell you some magic cure or magic bullet. I'm here just to genuinely offer a space of support to demystify, destigmatize, and also just cut some of these misconceptions around pelvic health and sexuality and give you just medically accurate information and a source to just, just get this knowledge and then hopefully give you, empower you um, to trust, uh, to reach out to someone like me to, to address these concerns because you don't have to live with them and you don't have to live in isolation and that's it. You know, we don't talk about our sexuality or sexual health. And if we do, it's like, oh, if you got, you've got erectile dysfunction, take a pill, you know, that's been normalized, but it's like, all this other stuff around sexuality, masculinity, you know, again, leaning into spaces that are quite vulnerable, that that's far and few between, you know, and I and I see that slightly shifting. And I hope it continues to go in that direction of continuing to destigmatize sexuality, and especially around men's sexuality and, and health. Yeah, you know, I worked with a uh, pelvic floor physical therapist back in Charlotte, uh, back in the day. And she actually, much like you, had, you know, her pelvic floor courses that she took, but were, were predominantly women-based and, and female-oriented. And she kind of learned on the job a little bit, working with uh, a bunch of men that were being referred from one or two doctors in particular uh, for, uh, they were mainly truck drivers. She saw a lot of truck drivers, right? And and it really, if you think about it, it, it makes sense, right? They're on the road a lot. They're in a seated position. There's a lot of vibration. You know, there's just a bunch of things that could go wrong with nerves and the musculature and stuff in the pelvic floor area for truck drivers, long, especially long distance, right? So she built a, a, a phenomenal practice based, you know, almost 100% on, on truck drivers, male, male truck drivers. And she was really good at what she did. Um, but it did seem like, and this was one of her complaints, again, this was years ago now, but uh, that there wasn't a, a lot of education out there for us, right? Because in, in the curriculum, like I, I teach full-time now, and in our curriculum, I was even just asking around the other day a little bit about it. There's only that one hour, like you were kind of talking about, to talk about pelvic health, uh, which is fine because on the NPTE, the ratio of pelvic musculature and stuff we have to know about the pelvic area it is relatively minimal, you know, it, it is a small mm -hmm. percentage. So there's like things that are, are nice to know, you know, things that you need to know, and then things that are just nuts to know, again, pun not intended, but 
it, you know, it, it's like, okay, so if, if pelvic health is that thing that you have to then be interested in enough to pursue and really go after after you graduate, what, what should these students be looking for? What should new graduates be looking for as far as continuing education? What kind of courses are out there now? Obviously, like I said, if you want to do a little bit deeper dive into your course, that'd be great. You know, what, what, what's out there to help support them if they really do want to go down this road of male public health? Because I, I definitely think it needs to be addressed. And I think uh, it's one of those niches that really needs uh, more, more people, you know, making a charge. Right, right. So I, for, I think the first thing as far as expanding our curriculum and, and the message about pelvic health, and particularly for male pelvic health, would be to start in graduate schools and, and physical therapy programs and have specific uh, opportunities for clinical rotations, which again, I think I, I, I am hearing and gleaning that there are more students who are even voluntarily taking classes with the Herman and Wallace Institute outside of the physical therapy curriculum, just to start to, because they're so passionate, they know exactly that they want to to go into pelvic health. So they start their education while they're even in school. So I've met several students who've already started to take the uh, lead uh, in, as far as, you know, going in that direction, even in PT school. I also, so, so that's, you know, one thing is let's start the conversation in uh, physical therapy curriculum. Uh, but also, I think um, there's many, many courses now that are available and accessible for students online and in person. So Herman and Wallace Institute or Pelvic Rehabilitation Institute is one of them. Um, you also have Embodia, which is all online, but several of those. Uh, there's a Canadian uh, pelvic health solution. So they're in Canada, but they have many uh, in-person and online opportunities for continuing education that are all gender, you know, based uh, as far as that is and very expansive and include sexual health as well. And then the American Physical Therapy Association, which has recently started to emphasize male pelvic health. Uh, I was one of the pioneers to, to get the ball going with them as well, which is where my course sexual pain navigating care for cisgender men came about and uh, you know we teach in person and online as well and um, uh, entropy physiotherapy which is a group out of uh, Chicago there's a private practice but they also kind of have guest uh, teachers you know they Sarah Sarah yeah Sarah, Sarah Hagen, Hagen and Sandy Hilton yeah yeah they have ours. a male course yeah they have a course uh, on male pelvic health as well and I know they I believe they have one for with Embodia but they also have one in person they've also also collaborated with Paul Hodges, who's a researcher, has done a, a lot of research in the male pelvic health world as far as, you know, um, continents and, and bio, you know, biomechanics of, of the pelvic floor in men and so forth and cueing. So, so I know they've collaborated with them as well. And I know they specifically do have male models with that course. Uh, I'm not sure if that has changed. I know it's been a while, but um, you know, pre-pandemic for sure, but I'm not sure if that has changed now. And, and as I have already alluded to our, my course, uh, we usually hold, uh, hold my course in Atlanta um, because we have professional urogenital assistants that assist me during lab work. And it's one-on-one -on -one as far as, you know, using the material and, and applying it because uh, that's so important. That is so important to get yeah. those hands-on skills in a very structured and safe environment and, and to work through that. So yeah. And I saw you did an interview, too, with uh, Tracy Scher, uh, another good friend of ours at, uh, oh, yes. at the World Pelvic uh, Network. Yes. Uh, or what is it? Global Global Pelvic Network. 
uh, she's got a couple of male courses now too uh, that I've seen. So uh, again, that we're, we're seeing more, which is good, right? I mean, we're, we're heading down the right direction. Um, but you know, I, I feel like it's still a lot of work that needs to be done. So uh, if, if they're interested, if they want to go learn from you guys, you know, there, there's a, a small network there of people that you need to follow. And, uh, I'm just glad to have you on the show to talk about them. So, um, Tell us a little bit about maybe some tips, tricks, or pointers, or things you've learned along the way that that can help somebody that's just getting started in the male public health world. What are some things that uh, you think could help somebody that that's just starting out? Mm, mentorship. <laughs> so definitely connect with someone who you you know is inspirational for you and that you really want to learn from. That that is something that I did not you know have necessarily when I started. So mentorship. I think 100% uh, so that you can collaborate with somebody that someone can actually, who's, who's walked the walk the talk and have, has gone through trials and tribulations and, and, and again, can kind of guide you and weed out some of that excess work that you don't need to do. So uh, mentorship, um, I host, you know, I have a monthly mentorship group that's solely, you know, for male pelvic health, sexual health, uh, so forth. So that's, you know, an opportunity, but also just, um, yeah, connecting with other therapists who, like I said, who, who you find inspiring and who's doing the work around, you know, male pelvic health and sexuality. Um, so that's really great as well. The other thing I would say, I don't know if like right off the back, although some uh, off the bat, as, although some students are so, um, uh, there's so much passion for pelvic health when they already know, I will say the, the number one thing that has helped me in my career as far as expanding my uh, comfort level with working with men and sexuality is taking a sexual health certificate program. And that, and that's through, you know, that could be through the university of Michigan. They have a really extensive program. That's where I did my, um, uh, cert certification through, and also just looking into, um, mentors and information on the American association of sexuality, educators, counselors, and therapists. That's a mouthful, but it's AAS. ECT.org. So if you're looking to expand, again, your repertoire and um, your toolbox, that's something that I would also just right off the bat, if you're looking to kind of expand that, because how can we do pelvic health without talking about sex? And it's like, you, you, it's like peanut butter and jelly, you know, it's, it's a functional, it's an activity of daily function. It is a necessity, a physiological necessity, like breathing, eating, and drinking water. So, so important. And the more that we do the work with our own selves around our own sexuality and so forth, uh, I think that is going to help us feel more comfortable with helping others. And that's something that's also lacking in the medical health community is we don't get sexual health education. Like there is no, like, that's not part of curriculum across the board. So yeah. you, unfortunately we have to seek these, um, specialties and these certifications and knowledge uh, for with other groups that are providing that but it, it is definitely lacking and it's a need and men well in my research about around men they want us to ask them about their sexual health problems you know they they expect us to ask them about their sexual health problems as a medical provider the problem is, is we're not talking about it so anyway didn't mean to digress but yes i would say getting a mentor um, learning as much as you can from books, you know, research, blogs, YouTube channels, um, and so forth, and and really just diving in, diving into doing the work, you know, and um, yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. I think uh, mentorship goes across the board. I think whatever you're interested in, find somebody who's already doing that and and seek out their mentorship. I mean, I can't even tell you how far that's gotten me in, in you know just a short period of time. I wish I had done this way earlier in my career. But um, and then yeah, I think you know the sex part's pretty important because I, I teach that a lot in geriatrics. That hey, look, it's just an activity of daily living. It's no different for for them than it is for, you know, your, your young, healthy 20 year olds. It's all the same, you know, it's just an activity of daily living. And we have to look at it that way. If we're going to treat the whole, the whole person, you know, the whole human and and what they're trying to do and accomplish. Right. Cause you know, geriatrics are trying to, to, to deal with the same issues, but maybe they just had a hip replacement or, you know, a knee replacement or something. So now they have to figure out how to adapt. Right. And we're, we're really the movement specialists and experts. So we should be able to help them adapt and figure out the, you know, ways to help them uh, with their activities of daily living like sex. So uh, Susie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for, uh, educating our audience on, on all things men's pelvic health related. We have one final question that we like to ask every guest. And that question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change? Why would you change it? And how would you change it? The one aspect I would change in the DPT curriculum is more uh, courses as far as communication skills and being an active listener. So the, the, the psychosocial aspects of working with people, I, I think that has been sadly lacking in uh, the curriculum. And we need to know how to list, genuinely listen, hold space for someone, skills like empathy and compassion. We all have it. We just need to grow it. You know, how do we work on expanding our uh, communication skills, both verbally and non-verbally? And I do feel that we are also lacking psychologically informed care. And we as physical therapists, because we're de- we're working with human beings, should have that in the forefront because it's the most important, in my opinion, that they're building that therapeutic relationship and that container right in the beginning is the most important treatment that we could be doing by listening to that person's story, reflecting, validating, affirming, and building trust. It's it's only going to make whatever you do in that therapeutic setting a hundred times more beneficial as far as their outcomes. So that is something that we did not have in the curriculum. I don't know what it's like now, but I, I, I say, I say this to everyone, like, and had I known like the skills that I'm actually using so much more of now, I would have gone to, to get a, an undergrad in psychology degree and not biology pre-med because I am not using that. I'm not looking under microscopes. I'm not a marine biologist. I, I, I do wish I had maybe gotten more um, psychologically informed education. So that's what I would change. Yeah, that's that's a great response. I mean, whether you want to call it, you know, soft skills or bedside manner or EQ or whatever. I think a lot of us have that. Uh, if we get into healthcare, we, we, and we get into it because we care and we want to help people get better. I think for the most part, you know, we have good hearts. We have good communication skills, right? I was an English major, so it's a weird turn for me, but I, I could communicate at least, uh, you know, just based on my, my reading and writing skills. So that helped. Uh, plus I was in a lot of the plays and musicals and stuff in high school. So you know, I, I, I could act and, and, you know, speak relatively easily, I guess it was, it, it came kind of natural to me, but for those that don't have that naturally, 
it can be difficult, but it can be taught, I think, too, like you said. And there are ways to, you know, bolster some of those communication skills uh, and the, the bedside manner stuff. So, yeah, I think that would be, you know, huge if we could could work on on that you know, more within the curriculum. And I think, I think we're trying somewhat unintentionally. I think we're with a lot of the new simulations and technologies and things that we're using, uh, you know, uh, mock patients and, and paid actors that are coming in to do a lot of the patient work. I think that helps with that a little bit. It puts them in little, you know, more real situations. The more we can introduce them to clinicals uh, sooner or even just, you know, uh, shadowing opportunities, I think that helps. Um, but, but, you know, I, I definitely think that there is a need for that out there for sure. And I think if we can, we can find ways to kind of, you know, help bolster that in people, especially those that may not have it naturally, uh, it, it'll definitely help make for a better clinician on the end. And I think it's interesting that you, you say the psych thing, because there really is a huge therapy part to physical therapy, right? It is very therapeutic. A lot of times you're just listening to the patient and that's more helpful than doing three sets of 10 of whatever exercise you want to do. Right. Right. So, and it's, it's interesting to me because occupational therapy started from psychology background, right. And became occupational therapy, whereas physical therapy started from a nursing background and became physical, right. So had we both kind of come together earlier on, I think we would have had that a better balance of that biopsychosocial. And I think both fields would have benefited from it. But, you know, it is what it is. It's our history. You know, we, we, we got, we got here eventually. Now we're just trying to, to optimize, I think. So, uh, well, Susie, again, thank you so much for your time and for coming on. Where can people find you and reach out to you if they want to learn more about what you're up to and kind of learn some of the ins and outs of male pelvic therapy uh, and what you're up to these days? Yeah, well, thank you for that. So I am, you can find me on drsuzieg.com. That's D-R-S-U-S-I-E-G.com. I'm also on Instagram and YouTube. So if you'd like to learn more about what I'm up to, those are the places to check it out. Awesome. We'll put all those links in the show notes so you guys can find her easily. Once again, thanks so much for your time, Susie. We really appreciate it. And I can't wait to see what uh, you get up to over these next couple of years. Thank you, Scott.